Well, joining me on ATP Tennis Radio is the master, Sir Louis Kaya, who is uh, the doubles coach, has been very much a part of the British success over the years. Louis, it's great to see you. Yes, for one year and a half now, I was waiting at home now since Queen's. I'm on the road and I'm loving it. How many years have you been a doubles coach? I think I've started officially on the road in 1989, so that will mean 32 years. Quite a lot, eh? And initially, because of course that was in Canada, so who were the players you started with? Um, Connell, Michibara, after that there was uh, Laro and Nestor, and they were all very successful. Even at one point, three, uh, three of the five top five teams in the world was including a Canadian player in it. Could you give our listeners a little insight into your philosophy? Because you are different to a lot of other coaches. You've also had a lot of success in singles as well, I, I may add. But your philosophy in doubles, because it, a lot of it is stats-based. Yeah, the philosophy is not stats-based. The philosophy is uh, we're going to win matches because we're going to make the opponent lose. It's not about us going and making aces, return winners. It's not about us playing amazing. It's about making the opponent play bad. How do we do that? We have a very, very strong and very offensive positioning where even sometimes the commentators criticize, oh, he's, does, he's not practicing the trem, protecting the trem line. But on, as a receiver's partner, we're not protecting the trem line. And in 15 years now in the UK, coaching over 12 players in the top 50, playing a lot, it never happened that one Brit was beat three times in the trem line. So we have that as a rule. So we force people to make low percentage shot. We're very, very aggressive, like service partner. If you watch on TV, uh, we have a foot in the middle of uh, the box. We're not covering the trim line at all. And that's it. We, we poach a lot. We move a lot. So we create a lot of uncertainty. And when you create a lot of uncertainty, you create a lot of stress. When you create stress, you create muscle tension. When you create muscle tension, then the players start to play bad. And then you get upset and then more tension. So we, we're experts at making people play bad. So basically what you're saying, as a doubles pair, it's impossible to cover the whole court. So you're leaving a part of the court. You are giving them the part of the court. Wherever the ball lands, the other side of the net, the, the most difficult area of the court to hit in. Is that correct? Exactly. If we lose, it's because the opponent will zone and just beat us with low percentage shot, which doesn't really happen. Of course, we can lose because we play bad. Nobody's perfect. But overall, we're very difficult to beat because they have to beat us with tough shots. In front of me is, is Louis and his best friend. And his best friend is his laptop. And it's, he's just been showing me, actually, uh, for the last 15 minutes before we started recording this interview, all the stats that you have, all the, 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 the relevant details. So, so to try and make it as simple as possible, Louis, to our, our listeners... What do you have on your laptop and, and, and how many matches do you have on your system that you can call, up, you call upon? We have uh, all the matches we play since I think now 2017 are recorded and we can recall all the stats we won for the last five years, four years, three years. Or I could ask the stat just on hard court or just on clay court, just on grass. Or I could ask uh, where Jamie, what Jamie did against the Frenchies, only the French so if he played 12 matches, I can recall any type of stats I want, any match I want. And we have a lot of uh, this in our players. Like if I look about at the end of the year for Joe, Jamie or Neil or all the Brits, what are their objectives for next year about serving? 
we have stats based on like 2,000 serves. So that doesn't lie. So you say that serve, you master it just 55%. It has to be 66%. Let's work more. And we have... So it's, it's good to coach facts because we have... Uh, it's not just in tennis. We have smart goal setting. Uh, goal setting has to be specific, measurable, agreed by the player. Let's take time frame in a way. We call that like smart goal setting. But if you don't have any fact to base your goal and if you cannot track the improvement because you don't monitor the progress that's not very systematic or professional coaching in my opinion I'm just going to give you a few numbers if if I play doubles with my partner we serve 70% first serves in what would our ranking be and if I'm returning and my partner and I we make 80% of returns roughly what would our ranking be at the end of the year if you play with people of your level Uh, you'll be in the top 10 of your group very, very probably. But if you play against people of not your level, even if you put 100% or it has nothing to do. So the stats are relevant when you play the similar level. So it's very important in double to serve 66% or more. Why 66? It's four first serve out of six. If you ask more than that, five out of six is a bit uh, too much. So four out of six is good. Three out of six is not enough. It's 50%. So we're looking for 66. On return, we're looking on first serve 80%, on 75-80%, because sometimes people serve too good. But on second serve, we're looking for 90%. And the point one, we're looking for 33% on first serve and 55% on second serve. Because and Often when I start my game plan, I would say... The reason today I think you're going to win 52% of the point is because if you look at all the stats, you know it's always, I'm sure you look at it, it's always 2-3% more, 53-52. So we have to have the belief of what will make the difference and we need to control what we can control, which is our tactics and a bit our consistency. We have some control on that. Novak Djokovic's best year ever on tour, I think was maybe 10 titles or 11 titles. He won 56% of the points. And it's always a number that really surprises people. So the equivalent in doubles, so Mektic and Pavic, they've won nine titles. They have been the best pair in, in 2021. How, what percentage of points would they win in a year with nine titles? Uh, it will be probably around that also. Uh, sorry, I didn't make the stats. I don't like to say a number. One I don't know, but it's probably around that, the same thing, yes. Let's go back to the very beginning. How hard is it to convince very good singles players to buy into your methods? Because generally, I remember worked a lot with Peter Fleming. I think they won it seven years in a row, the ATP finals. And when he played with McEnroe, he always used to say, no, 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 it's just gut feeling. Now, your, your methods are different. So how hard would it be to convince great singles players to buy into your beliefs? But first of all, when you're a superstar and you're McEnroe and all this and you say, or great uh, Federer and you say it's gut feeling and all this, okay, fine, you're the best in the world. But what do you say to someone who is 100 or 200? Sorry, you don't have the gut feeling, bye-bye. So you, we have a good coaches to help people who are not the best to become the best, you know, to help them. So what I use is... Uh, most at the beginning. Now people will trust me a little bit more because they, uh, I proved that it was successful. But at the beginning, I was always traveling with a rope in my bag. And I would say, okay, where do you think the ball could pass if the guy returned cross-court? Say from there to there. Then I would put the rope where they said the ball will pass, put markers, and I say, see, this is the court you have to protect. How long is the rope? 
Uh, it has to be like 85 feet, 90 feet, which or 30 meters rope, so to go from one end to the other end. And I would uh, take two ropes to make the angle, so it could go to the middle, to the angle. Look, and these are the markers at the net. This is what you have to cover. And this part of the net, see, too low percentage, don't even bother. Don't even bother, just cover that. And with the rope, it was very uh, kinesthetic, much better than drawing a, a cord on a piece of paper and making lines with a rule because they could touch it, they could go in between the ropes, they could look behind, and that was uh, very, very important for the buy-in. Now, like I said, now I could be just, it's from there to there, and they will trust me, but at the beginning, I was especially a, a new coach in the UK. I arrived here when I was 55, and I have to prove pretty much everything. got to ask you again, so how did the rope come about? I mean, because I'm sure you, you were the first... To, to have a rope on the court and when you did were people looking at you what's going on here yeah some foreign coach because sometimes I was using it on the tour they would look at me and a bit uh, laughing but after that some people start to copy me because they start to realize why it works well I remember my first year in 2006 uh, I was showing I was already working with Jamie and Andy chose to play with uh, Jamie and I wanted to be sure like on a wide serve because Jamie is lefty on a wide serve that when he poached, you just have to be in the middle of the court. And he told not even cross the court. Say, you must be joking, poaching is crossing. And I said, no, 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 no. You know, and you could see a big disbelief. So I had to go in my bag, take the rope, say, where's the ball? So you had the rope, you had Andy Murray on the court, and you had the rope. And I had the rope, and the rope don't lie. If the ball goes angle, you make a rope from where the ball will be hit to the angle shot, and the, he sees that the ball passed right in the middle of the court so why going so far when you can just be there so it was absolutely a must for me to have a rope so all the coaches who listen to me bring a 30 meters rope in your bag and you can convince anyone well, we've seen Andy Murray he's always been a great singles player who translates his game onto doubles court he's always had the instincts but I think in recent years we've seen him become a great doubles player so how hard has it been for him to buy into your beliefs? First of all, it, he didn't really kind of buy in. He was not forced to. It's him who asked me. It was uh, the 2015 when he really wanted to win the Davis Cup because we didn't win it for 77 years. He was fully aware that he could win his two singles, which he did, and that if he win the doubles with Jamie, then they win Davis Cup. So he was asking me, and he took like, uh, I don't know, 20, 30 hours of doubles training. And, uh, but with Andy, you have to say the why every time. So interesting. So, so you normal. I like that. I like that. So you're talking about 25, 30 hours. So was that 25, 30 hours around his singles, or did you have specific days where he would just purely focus on doubles? It was purely doubles, like including uh, it was during the O2, where he was in the final in singles. We would go in Queens on clay court to practice doubles drills because he knew that he would beat uh, Goffin or whatever other second singles from Belgium and that if he win the doubles with uh, Jamie, that's it. The Davis Cup belongs to us. So he, he may even have jeopardized his success at the U2 in 2015 because for him, Davis Cup was the, what he wanted. And we were training very often each day on, on his doubles on clay court. Just going back to your numbers, you, you, you talked about six. Everything was about six because it's, with the new scoring, seven. Excuse me, seven, seven points in a game. How does your mindset adjust 
when you're playing Grand Slams, when it's no sudden death or juice? Uh, before a match, we always discuss, as part of the game plan, where will we serve that seven point. So the first break point, if the do side takes it, what will be our place to avoid like any stress? Because let's say you play, everybody always serve easy, and suddenly at 5-5 for the first time, there's a break point. You don't want to start to think and rush your decision. So they are all decided before. But it could be deuce or add. In a slam, it's always, almost all the time, the add side. So it's not much different, except we analyze much more where to serve the big point on the add side. And it's more about the training. Like right now, Nils Kupski trained at the NTC. And we put like three-hour session because the, it's a normal scoring. So the doubles match can last two and a half hours. As on the tour, it's about an hour and a half. So we just change the training, but it doesn't change that much uh, how we play doubles. It's absolutely fascinating. Louis is sitting here in Turin, but you've been watching Neil Skupski back at the National Tennis Centre in, uh, in, in the UK, which is a stone's throw away from where they play women and qualifying. So what have you seen on his practice this morning? But we, it's, it's almost always to refocus on the pattern. So I have to say, okay, practice your first volley when they're both back. Practice your first volley when they're one up, one back. Practice your first volley when you serve regular. Practice your volley when you serve high, when you poach or non-poach. So I, I just to remind him to not just, just make general practice, just feel good practice, but to practice specific. I really believe in specific training, not just general practice all the time. Yeah, because I... I and I was guilty of it when I was playing, and it's a bit of a head-scratcher to me when you look at some, some practice sessions and two hours, and they'll be hitting ground shots for an hour and a half, an hour and 45, and two most important shots in singles are serve and return. The average rally length here in Turin is four shots. So in doubles, uh, if, if, if it's a two-hour practice session... What would be the sort of breakdown of a session of that length? I will do what's the most frequent. We often have 30 minutes on the tour. So it's 15 minutes serve and return. When we have 45 minutes, it's 25 minutes. When we have an hour, it's 30 minutes. So when we have two hours, it's about an hour. So we take a tiny bit more than 50 or more. But when I, like when I arrived in UK, it was pretty much like around the world. If they had an hour, it was the last 10 minutes. And they would practice or serve when they're tired. And it's a fine synchronization, so you have to practice your serve when you're not tired, but still practice at the end when you're tired to not lose your coordination. Uh, so we do a lot, uh, very early in the practice, serve where you serve spots, and at the end we do a lot of serve, but competitively. And I like the, what we call the volleyball game. You just win a point like when you serve, so it makes you focus on each serve, because let's say you're, if you play just a game of five, you may be up 4-1, you lose two points, you win the next point, you're, you win 5-3, you're happy. But if you're up 3-0 and you lose that point, then the other guy starts to serve and he may get up to four. Then you serve again when you lose, and if you don't win, he serves again to five, so you have to concentrate on each point. Sorry, it may be complicated on the radio, but uh, I try to create performance pressure and make them apply on each point. But a lot of serve and return, a lot of serve and return all the time working on what's going to matter in the heat of the battle. How have your coaching philosophies evolved? Because I'm sure when you started, if you served and stayed back, no, you can't do that. Now, how many people serve and stay back? And what have you done to adjust your methods? I remember it was a training camp in Mallorca, maybe six years ago, the team of the training camp for all the Brits. It was 
how to beat these uh, damn <laughs> singles players. Because right now there's about 60% of the top 100 who serve and stay back. And like you say a long time ago, like a Kalinman could would say, uh, Louis, I don't play proper doubles, I serve and I stay back. Now you will never say that. Yeah, I play doubles. I serve and I walk my forehand, you know. So for now it's really, really common. And both back on the return, normally you were teasing, oh, you're afraid. I mean, everybody now play both back on the first serve. It's very common, even the Bryans were doing it. So a lot of things have changed, which is good for the club members, because a club member now can serve and stay back. And if the coach, you know, it's servant volley, he would say, sorry, 97% of the top ladies stays back and 60% of the top men stay back. So what's wrong if I stay back? And if you play both back on the return, you say almost everybody does that. So for the club members, the way doubles have evolved is very good for them. If, if you are giving any advice to club members, so three tips, because some of the tips that you've given will work for the top end of the game, but if, if you're a good club player, what would be the three tips that you think could really help them win those tough matches for their club? Okay, I'll start, like we say, serve and return is important. When you serve, it's think, serve and move. Either move to the net if you like serve and volley, or move to the outside of the court. Uh, what does I mean? On due side, too many people serve close to the tram line, so they cannot serve on the back end of the person who use the foreign and attack them. So you serve closer, like if you are playing singles, you can reach the back end, and right after you serve there, you push yourself to the right, or you go to the net, or if you choose to poach, you have less, much less to move, and then you cross. So I call that serve and move. Move everywhere, but move, but take a position where it's easier to serve on the back end. And that's true on, on the deuce side, especially. On the outside, you can serve closer to the tram line on the back end. But even after you serve, why staying there? Go to the tram line and increase your chance to use another foreign. So it's all based on a big, complicated strategy. Lose, look to set up your strength, which is your foreign, and look to exploit the weakness, which is often for power and stuff like this, the back end. Louis, it's been a, a real real treat to have your time. Thanks very much. Just one last question. I'm not going to ask you currently because I think that would be unfair. But in the previous generations, who's the best doubles player you've seen and which is the best doubles pair you've seen? McEnroe was the best doubles player. He had that sense, that anticipation, that presence that was intimidating everyone and he was really genius. And I learned a lot on coaching volleys by watching him. And it's funny, the other coach, I don't copy him, he's unique, but I say, if he's the best, he do something right. You know, like side spin volley on a low ball, I teach that to every British player now, as it was like kind of forbidden. So he was quite a genius. And his sidekick, Peter Fleming, was perfect. Did he really combine well? Matter of fact, they win seven times in a row the year and Masters, so they were really good. After that, you have to say at to the Bryants. I mean, they, they established all the records, and they were very inspirational because I like to coach uh, energy in the court, and the Bryants were the best to do that. Unconditional energy, you know, losing, winning, even the exhibition match, they always do that, and they have inspired a lot the British system on how to go on the court and act like a team, so the Bryants were there. And, of course, the Woodies was good, but I think the Bryants were a bit... Uh, a bit superior, even if the Woodies was were great. The best player I coached personally 
by Daniel Nestor. Daniel Nestor won 89 tournaments. He won the gold medal. He won every slam, every uh, Masters. So he was by, uh, the best uh, player that I coached for results. How can you coach energy? First, you can put it as mandatory. If, you, if we work together, you have to come and present a peak performance state. What is peak performance state? It's high positive energy. So you will see the Brits going to each other. When they leave each other, they leave with a stutter step. They don't just walk to their position. And, uh, and I request at the beginning, the players have a system. You have to coach a performer and a player. Performer is their head, heart and legs, which is for mental, emotional and physical. But it, it really, it's better relatable words to say head, heart and legs. And if they fail in this regard, all the video, all the stats, all this, no tennis report because everything that I will say on the foreign mistake or tactics is irrelevant because they were not fully engaged with positive energy. So why give tennis feedback when the mistakes were probably done with poor focus, poor energy, poor that? So after a while, the players really understand that, hey, I'm serious. If I don't come in the court with high positive energy, there's no tennis feedback. So I get that under the belt very, very early when I start to work with players. And then they start to like the feeling of playing with the peak performance state and then we can tackle the tennis and make giant steps.